This is the Bridge Church Podcast, an audio ministry of the Bridge Church, a Nazarene community in Oahu, Hawaii. Please visit us in person or check us out online at bridgenaz.org. We hope to hear from you. We hope to see you. God bless. Mahalo. Genesis. They, they think, as you've heard me say before, of the first chapter, the creation poem, uh, the account, right, of God creating the world and everything in it. Sometimes when people think of Genesis, they might think a little bit beyond that to the fall, right, um, which comes just a couple chapters later. Some, when they think of Genesis, may even go as far as the flood of Noah. Some may go all the way up to Babel, the Tower of Babel or Babel when they think of it. But I would contend that in the minds of many, however, the stopping point for thinking about Genesis is chapter 11 or before. Chapter 11 is the Tower of Babel. But we've gone verse by verse and chapter by chapter through this story. And as we know, man, there's so much more in Genesis than just those couple of big events. Genesis 12 and beyond is just chalk of meaning. We've been following the story of our ancestors throughout this family novel of ours. And one thing that we can say for sure is this, they were screwed up. Right? They were messed up. Um, and truth be told, um, there's about one, maybe two chapters dealing with the creation stuff and 48 dealing with messed up people. That's really how you can think about Genesis. Uh, 48 chapters dealing with our messed up family who, by the way, have paved the way for us to be messed up too. Um, and so as I said before, when it comes to Genesis, some get hung up on whether, you know, on an ethical and moral, or wh- whether it's all about evolution, right? But Or is it all about creation? Some sort of hunker down and talk about that. But really, as we read Genesis and as we get past Genesis 2, we see that at least on an ethical and moral level, nothing has really changed. There has been no evolving. (laughs) There's been no evolution in terms of morality and ethics. On an ethical and moral level, we see all the same things happening in Genesis still today. We still lie. We still cheat. We still swindle and deceive and so on. We have not evolved in that sense at all. Right, So today's part of the story, which is actually one of the most, if not the most, troubling parts of the whole story of Genesis, um, is going to remind us of that. So if we have eyes to see and ears to hear, we'll find that the scene that we're about to enter into, um, which to many, Genesis 38 is going to seem like an interruption. Like, why is this here? Well, it actually has a whole lot to teach us. And one of the great truths that it points us to is that each of us, regardless of how good or honest or upright we might consider ourselves to be, each one of us has blind spots. We have intellectual blind spots and emotional and relational blind spots. We have spiritual blind spots. We all have blind spots. And while the term blind spot actually originated with like the eye, and a certain physical malady, impairing sight, 
Most of us know the term blind spot today from driving, right? Our blind spot is that area uh, we can't see when we're driving in the car. That danger zone, right? Other vehicles can enter into it. And if we're unaware, right, of vehicles entering, it can cause a major mishap. A major mishap. But we all have that these at a personal level too. For example, most of us have interviewed at some point for a job in our lives, right? One of the questions we get asked often is something like, what are your greatest strengths and weaknesses? Ever been asked that question in a job interview? Anybody? Yes. All right, not just me. Good. Um, and so it can be like a tricky question, that one. Uh, but, but here's the truth, okay? Each of us has strengths, and those strengths, every single one of them has a shadow side. So there's actually a lot of truth to, to the response, my strengths are my weaknesses. Every strength has a shadow, a shadow side. It happens to us all the time. Right? If someone's strength lies in their charisma, then the weakness or the shadow side of that might be wearing people down without even realizing it, being overbearing. If someone's strength is public speaking, then their weakness might be coming off cold or impersonal in one-on-one -on -one interactions. I had a professor in seminary who could get in front of the crowds, thousands, who could get in front of the television cameras and was just on point. But when it came to one-on-one -on -one dialogue, it was often difficult to have a good chat. So if you take a moment and you think about your greatest strength or strengths, if you get honest with yourself and you do some digging, you can find the shadow side of that strength or those strengths. Your blind spot, in other words. Another term for that is mind bug. That's actually our word of the week, mind bug, by the way. A mind bug is just an ingrained habit that leads to errors in how we perceive or we think about things, how we remember, how we reason and make decisions. And I'm bringing this up because frankly, at the heart of today's focal passage, Genesis 38, is the truth that we all have blind spots. We all have mind bugs. <laughs> and if we fail to recognize them, and if we fail to own up to them, if we have, fail to have eyes to see them, and we fail to have the courage to be honest about them, then just like the danger zone in driving, that blind spot, we stand the chance of some wreckage, some devastating consequences and mishaps. And so I invite you to keep that in mind this morning as we turn to the Scriptures. We're going to turn to this really troubling story. It's a troubling story, guys. Genesis 38. We're going to read this together. All right. Here's how it begins. It says, At that time, Judah went down from his brothers and visited a certain Adolamite, whose name was Hirah. So you remember that this, at least in the narrative flow of Genesis, occurs after Joseph has just been thrown into a pit and subsequently trafficked or sold into slavery, which will occur and play out in Egypt. Now I just want to point out a few things here. First, let's remember who Judah was, okay? Let's look at the family chart together. You remember this. You can see uh, Judah here. He's number four. He was the fourth and the um, youngest son of Leah. You remember Leah, the wife that Jacob hated, right? He loved Rachel but hated Leah, the text tells us. His oldest brother was Reuben. You can see the number one there. And Reuben took one of his dad's concubines as his own and committed adultery and incest with her. 
His other brothers, Simeon and Levi, you'll remember, were murderers and thieves. Simeon and Levi, they raided the town of Shechem, as we read a few chapters back. And so Judah's big brothers, to say the least, were not good examples for him. And his mom, Leah, or Leah, right, she was the deceiver who tricked dad on the wedding night. Needless to say, he's got, not got a lot going for him, Judah. He's not got a lot going. And this chapter portrays him in a way that is not at all flattering. In fact, he comes off as a scumbag or a sleaze. Keeps his family pedigree uh, going. <laughs> and so, second, I want you to notice that it says he went down from his brothers. And again, you remember, Joseph has just been trafficked and sold into slavery into Egypt by his brothers. He had no choice. But Judah is the kind of guy who's chosen to go away from his brothers on purpose. Not sold into slavery, but he's chosen to go away from That's his choice. So we're already starting to see a contrast here between the kind of person that Judah is and Joseph is. And that's going to be really important for next week's passage as well. Where did Judah go? Well, that's the third thing. He went to visit some non-Israelites. That is, some Canaanites. And that's a bad idea throughout the story of Genesis. In particular, he visits an Adolamite, this man named Hirah. And later in the story of God's people, um, Adolamite territory actually becomes the location where the tribe of Judah is sort of stationed. And so as I told you before, right, you have to always keep this in mind. We have to pay attention to way to the opening verses of a story or a chapter because they frame everything. They're often the little details that thousands of years removed from when this actually happened, right? We, we, we can stand the chance of missing them and sort of, oh, a Dolomite. We can just read past that. Went down. We can just read past that. But the original audiences, or the close to original audiences, would have picked up on these little nuances. So we're getting a picture here of just what kind of person Judah is, and it'll be a stark contrast to the kind of person that Joseph is. And the next few verses are going to just lay it all bare. Okay, Judah apparently isn't aware of his own mind bugs or his blind spots, but we as readers, we get to see them. We're given a window into them, and they're not pretty. But maybe... Just maybe we can learn from his blind spots and in so doing spare ourselves some heartache. We're going to keep reading. The next verse says, There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite man named Shua. He took her and went into her. Um, again, this is a, a troubling story. So we just read that Judah was to go, going to visit this man named Hirah. And while he's doing so, he meets another man named Shua who Shua can either mean rich or sad. It can mean either one of those terms. And it turns out that Shua is a Canaanite man. And he has a daughter who, of course, is also a Canaanite. And she essentially takes on her dad's name, Bathshua. Kind of like the name Johnson for John's son, right? Or Robinson for Robin's son. Right? Her name, we learn in verse 12, is Bathshua. Daughter of Shua is what that means. Daughter of sadness. Keep that in mind as far as this Canaanite goes. We also have to bear in mind the kind of father, mother, and brothers Judah had. And we should expect that what's going to happen here is that Judah's going to act just like they have. And not surprisingly, he does. First chance he gets, he latches on to 
this Canaanite woman, and it's a huge problem for the family. Do you remember what uh, Isaac told Jacob just a few chapters back in Genesis 28.1? The family code, don't marry a Canaanite woman. Don't take a Canaanite woman. Yeah, yeah. Here, here's what he told him. So you see, if we keep this whole story in mind, we recall things like this. This is against the family rules, what Judah's doing. It's not allowed. And when we read about Judah um, being with this Canaanite woman, we should know that problems are on the horizon. It's breaking the family code. It's breaking family trust. This is an impediment to the family line. Nevertheless, Judah's going through with it anyway. All right, let's keep reading. She conceived and bore a son and named him Ur. She conceived again and bore a son and she named him Onan. She yet again bore a son and named him Shelah. He was at Chezib when she bore him. All right, so Judah, right, Judah and his Canaanite uh, woman, Bathshua, daughter of Sadness, or daughter of Shua, we can, can, we can assume that's the wife now, right? They're having all these children, three children, and these kids' names, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Details we often want to skip over. These are critical to understanding what the Scripture is telling us, Okay. Um, and, and then you get this statement at the very end. He was at Kesev when she bore him. Okay, what difference does that make to us? Why do we care? It doesn't matter where he was born. Why does it matter? We have to ask that. Why does it matter? Well, one thing is that it, it draws our attention to the name, Kesev. And as it does that, in my view, it draws our attention to the other names that are mentioned here as well. The woman shall be named later. Well, we get the place name, and we get these, these three kids' names. And these names, they help tell the story at sort of another level. They operate at another level. Let me, let me share this with you. So the first name, Er, E-R. Interestingly, in Hebrew, if you take that and you reverse it, or it should be this because Hebrew, right? If you take it and reverse it to Re, or Ra, it means evil. So it's a wordplay. It's a pun going on here, okay? Or wicked. That's what it means. The name Onan means something like pain or mourner, mourning. The name Shelah means delusion. And Kezev means disappointment. So you see, if we don't pay attention to the names that are kind of lost on us when we're thousands of years removed, we're missing all kinds of like clues as to what the story is going to be about. The names to the Hebrew speakers here reinforce the story and tell the story at another level. And they're introducing to us, right at the start, these themes of sadness and wickedness and mourning and delusion and disappointment. It's kind of like Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Right? The names help tell the story. Grumpy, dopey, sneezy, sleepy, bashful, dark, and happy. That's precisely what's going on here. Just using the names to help tell the story. All right. Um, so, in other words, the, the text couldn't help but scream at us like any louder. Hey, y'all, the names are giving the story away. They should tell you what's about to happen. They give us clues as to the characters and their blind spots, you see. And while... When we turn to scripture, we tend to identify with the good guys in the story, the heroes in the story. But I think we're invited in this case to see ourselves in each of these characters. 
to see them for who they are, but to see us in them as well. We're invited to see their blind spots and realize I have the very same blind spots going on in my own life. We just got to have eyes to see and be honest with ourselves. And if we do, it can keep us from experiencing some of the same heartaches they do. Let's keep reading. It says, Judah secured a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the eyes of Adonai, and so Adonai killed him. Woo! That's troubling on a few levels. Judah has a son, Ur, and when he grows up, he finds a wife for Ur, and the wife's name is Tamar. She's a Canaanite. And so he's perpetuating the problems, you see. That's what the story's telling us. This is the same Tamar we find in the genealogy of the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus' genealogy. She's considered a Gentile woman who helped save the Messianic line, but through a very, very scandalous act. What she does in the story is super troublesome. And what we got to remember, remember the family motto of Genesis? Be fruitful and multiply. That's the whole MO, the whole model of Genesis. The idea, right, was to, to fill the earth with people. Why? Because people are made in the image and likeness of God and they bear God's glory. And so if you populate the world with people, everywhere you look, you're going to get to see God's image and likeness and God's glory. And God has this very specific family that he's trying to work through to make this happen. But the family, as we've seen, keeps disobeying. And keeps getting in the way. They keep resorting to their own plans and ideas and machinations. And the text here says that Ur is wicked in God's eyes. Remember, Ur means wicked when it's reversed. And we get this crazy line. So Adonai killed him. God kills people? Wait, wait, God kills people? Pastor, you say God kills people. Like, I'm not. What's going on with that? God takes lives? Is this just like the mean Old Testament God, not the nice, warm, fuzzy Jesus? Like, what's going on? Well, we can't go there, right? We have to keep the storyline in mind. Again, the point from the start has been be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth with God's image and likeness and glory. And it has to be done in a very, very specific way. Ur, a son of Judah, should have been marrying within the people of Israel. <laughs> And following that, that route, but he follows instead in his dad's footsteps and takes a Canaanite woman. In other words, he follows his dad's example, his dad's awful example instead of God's plan. We, we don't get a clue about how he might or what he might have done until we read about his brother, Onan. So let's look at the next bit. Judas said to Onan, go in to your brother's wife and do what's required for her. And raise up offspring for your brother. Onan knew that the offspring wouldn't be his. And whenever he repeatedly, that's important, repeatedly, went into his brother's wife, he ruined it on the ground, lest he should give offspring to his brother. The thing he did was ra, evil, in Adonai's sight, and he killed him also. Crazy story, super troubling, right? Um... What's really important here is this verse 10. At the very end, we have that word also. It's there in Hebrew as well. He killed him also. It's important because it tells us that 
Whatever Onan was doing was essentially or similar to what Ur had been doing to deserve the same punishment. It's not the spilling of seed on the ground that's the issue. The problem is disobeying God's plan. Not only that, but purposefully acting to thwart God's plan. This is Ur and Onan acting in such a way as to use Tamar for pleasure, using her, and in a way abusing her, and at the same time getting in God's way by doing all that. So remember, Abraham made a covenant with God. You've got to keep this in mind. There was a promise. That's what essentially a covenant is. It's a promise. And the covenant of circumcision, you remember, was to mark each of Abraham's descendants as God's slave or God's servant. And the reason it's circumcision is because it's the part of that body that gives life. So you see, God's circumcised people, as God's people of the promise, are not really breaking the promise now, but they're actively trying to afford it. They're using the part of the body that marks them as God's slave to say, essentially, God, I'm not your slave. I'm going to do with this part of my body whatever I want. And I don't want to fulfill your plan. So they're using the part of the body that's meant to set them apart as God's people to engage in abusive behaviors and illicit behaviors with those who are not considered God's people. It's like using that part of the body to give God a big finger, right? It's an absolute undermining of everything that God has called his people to up to this point. And so if they're going to start using that part of the body that's meant to give life for this wicked purpose, then they themselves shall not have life. The consequences were steep. And maybe you're thinking, so if I get in God's way, he might kill me? Don't, don't mishear me when I say that, right? It's not up to me, first of all. It's up to him. Um, but just as God gives life, he can take life away. Now, I'm not saying that, that every time someone dies, God is taking them away either. I'm not saying that. Don't mishear me on that. Not at all. That's not the point. I'm saying that in this case that we're reading about right here, God who gives life is being undermined, and well, it's his prerogative to take the life he's given if he so desires. You've got to be comfortable with God's sovereignty. He's sovereign. And at a very minimum, as troubling as that might seem, it should give us pause. So if you're really worried about that and concerned about it, then don't do it. It should cause us to stop and consider how serious the consequences for our actions might just be. See, Ur and Onan, they didn't give heed to their blind spots. The appetites for abuse and promiscuity, their penchant for undermining God, well, those are massive blind spots, y'all. And do hear me when I say this, that you and I can absolutely live in ways that are contrary to God's call, and the end result can be devastating. We can engage in all sorts of illicit behaviors that ruin us, that deteriorate our bodies, that bring us to the brink of ruin at the end of death, or end of death, rather. It can definitely happen. Sometimes our blind spots can be lethal. Sometimes we can get into something, and just like that car we don't see coming, right, we get blindsided, and that's it. 
So being aware of our blind spots in our lives is vital. You can do something in a marriage that in one moment completely and utterly upends the marriage. You can do something at your job that in one moment brings it to an end. You can do something in your relationships with friends or family that in an instant causes the house of cards to fall. You can do something in your faith life that in one single act causes you to stumble and it can have major ramifications. You can handle finances in such a way that before you know it, you're broken out in the cold. You can be so head over heels for someone that you fail from the start to see the kind of person that they really are or what they're really after or all about. Mind bugs, blind spots can have devastating consequences in every area of life. Sometimes they can be death-dealing, just like they were here. So I urge you again, I want to just encourage you, take some time and evaluate your own life. Actually, let me put it differently. I've been doing a lot of reading lately, and lots of study on intentions and intentionality. And it's our theme for the year, living intentionally. And the one thing that nearly all social researchers and psychological researchers across the board the one default thing that they all agree on, it's a very sound principle, is we don't judge others the way we judge ourselves. They all agree on that. None of us judges other people the way we judge ourselves. What I mean is this, when we make judgments about ourselves, we judge our, our motives, our intentions. But when we judge other people, we judge them by their actions, because we don't have access to their intentions. We can only guess at what their intentions were. So part of the point is this. We can't make accurate judgments about ourselves by ourselves. You follow? We can't make accurate judgments about ourselves by ourselves. We need the input of other people who see our actions. We need others. And so if you want to begin to get a handle on your own blind spots, then what you need to do is ask two or three people that are close to you about them. Ask them, well, what do you think my blind spots are? Now, you got to have some courage to do this. you got to have some nerve to do this. What do you think my blind spots are? On the ride home today, if you are with someone in the car, ask them. If you're not with somebody in the car, call somebody, right? Ask them, what do you think my blind spots are? You strike up this conversation. If you don't have somebody else to talk, come to me. We'll talk about it, all right? You gotta be non-judgmental, non-defensive. When you get feedback, you hear it out, you welcome it, and you ruminate on it before you can get defensive. Make it a rule, in fact. If you ask someone to share their view on your blind spots, you are not allowed to get defensive. Understand that when someone's sharing what they perceive to be a blind spot, it may be from a place of trying to help you and spare you hurt. Let's keep reading. We're going to turn to the next verse. I want you to think about this. What's Judah's blind spot? See if you can pick it out. Here we go. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house until Shelah, my son, has grown up. For he thought, as he also died, like his brothers, Tamar went and lived and her father's house. And so Judah, he loses two sons to death, right? Ur and Onan, he has this third left, Shulah. And based on the local law and tradition, which is called letter of marriage, 
whenever a man dies and leaves his wife as a widow, the next brother in line is supposed to take her and help her to bear children. And in this case, there's an added dimension. God calls for his people to be fruitful and multiply, but they disobey. So here's how it plays out. Ur dies, so that man, Onan, was supposed to take Tamar to bear children. He refuses, so he dies. He's just abusing her, and he dies. Two sons down, one left to go. Shelah's the third son of Judah, but as we see here, Judah tries to trick Tamar. And an interesting narrative move. We as readers are given insight into the thoughts of the character. That's rare in Genesis so that we get that kind of access. It doesn't really happen much. We're told by the narrator what he's thinking, which is essentially Tamar is the kiss of death. Everything she touches dies. I don't want her anywhere around me or my only son left. What's the blind spot here? Okay, well, there may be many, but the one that readily comes to my mind is Sumi. Making assumptions. It's almost a superstitious kind of assuming. He assumes and he does so wrongly. He assumes that the reason his two sons died were because of Tamar. So he's blame shifting. As a parent, he overlooks the faults of his own sons and his own children and he shifts the blame instead to Tamar. He assumes that she's the cause. And let me just tell you, parents, you're pros at this. You are. You often assume the best about your own children, and you are ready to shift the blame when you can or when you need to. He's assuming, and his assuming leads to blame shifting. And the text has already told us his sons didn't die because of Tamar, but because of what? Their wickedness. Their abuse, their depravity, and their willingness to undermine God's plan for this family. You see, he makes an assumption and he thinks he's right. He's not open to hearing anything else but that. He's not open to hearing anything but that which confirms the view he already holds. And his view is that the problem can never lie with his family and his kids. Gotta be somebody else's fault. To Mars. Well, he's like that. <laughs> Know anybody who blame shifts? Uh, who assumes? Anybody who can't handle a perspective that isn't theirs? Yeah, when I ask you, do you know anybody? I hope you know that I'm pushing you to look at yourselves because I gotta look at myself too. Because the reality is, if I'm honest with myself, I've done all of this. I've assumed, I've blame shifted, I've been closed off to other views. Like I said at the start, we are invited to put ourselves in the shoes of these characters, and if we do, the dividends we reap can be rich. There's a massive blind spot Judah has, and the consequences can be devastating. As you've heard me say many times, sin rarely exists in isolation. Like roaches, where one sin exists, you can expect to find more. This blind spot of Judah is sinful in nature because it comes from a sinful place and it is in all respects simply a carrying on of his son's activities to thwart God's plan. That's all it is. Instead of doing right, 
He simply kicks Tamar out and sends her to dad's house. No intention of caring for her. This is a very shameful and abusive act on his part. Like sons, like father, or like father, like sons. They have no regard for this woman, Tamar. And they're simply continuing to mistreat and use and abuse her. It gets worse. After many days, Hathshua, the wife of Judah, died. And Judah was comforted. That's weird. And went up to his sheep shearers to Tamar. And he is for the Adolam. Tamar was like, look, your father-in-law is going up to Tanah to shear a sheep. And so Judah's wife died. And the text says immediately he's comforted. What? Comforted that she died? Was she just a nag or something? Like, how's he comforted by that? I don't, I don't know. Um, I think the text may be saying he's comforted in a different way. Notice where he goes. To his friend, Yerah the Adolamite. Where have we heard about him before? Earlier in the story, right? If you're a smart reader, you remember, we met this guy right at the start of the story. And Judah's decision to go to him in the first place is what led to this whole stream of problems we have now. And so he goes right back to him. Sounds kind of like addiction. Addiction can blind. So we should know that since he goes right back to this person, problems are on the horizon. It's interesting the text tells us he goes up at the time of the shearing of his sheep. I could dwell on this for a long time. We could say a lot about this. But um, you know that there were a lot of festivals in ancient Israel, right? Many feast days. Lots of festivals. And they were all, oftentimes, those festivals, marked by times of drunkenness and promiscuity. Not, <laughs> not all that different from what goes on during our festivals and uh, things like the Super Bowl and the World Series where trafficking picks up in a major way. But to the ancient listener, when they heard that, this is where Judah was going to this festival, um, they knew. They knew what this was. It's, it's like saying, you know, Uncle went down to the bar again. It's kind of when you say, he was going down to the sheep shirt because it's kind of like Uncle went down to the bar again. They knew what that meant. It's exactly what it would have been like. Second, Again, we've got to keep the Genesis story in mind. When was the last time we heard about sheep? Maybe you don't remember. It was with Jacob and Laban. Remember the story? Jacob totally tricked Laban and put down around the land of deception. And he used sheep to do it. And so, of course, Judah is his son. He's taking a play out of Dad's playbook. When we hear this bit about sheep, our minds should be going back there and thinking, ah, Another clue as to what's about to happen. Deception lurks on the horizon, and it does. You see, I know I already said it, but this helps these things frame the story. And they're giving us clues for what's about to happen. So we have to be clued into that. Here comes more trouble and deception. You see this, Tamar heard Judah was heading there. How she hear? Rumor mill, gossip. Um, blind spots are coming out again. A desire. To go, to go to the festival, to drink, to be promiscuous, just like his sons. Like father, like son, right? It's interesting, isn't it, how Genesis repeatedly reminds us how parents hand down things to their children? It's scary. I think of, like, the gestures and mannerisms and thought processes and work ethic and morals and so on that we pass on. Someone once told me, when you're a parent... You're not only raising your children, you're teaching your children how to raise their, their children. 
Or you're teaching your children how to raise grandchildren. That's scary. Because some days I'm not a great parent at all. I don't want to pass on my blind spots. But at, at some level, it seems inevitable. It'll happen. The remedy is simply to be aware and to teach that awareness, to talk about it and change and be open to growth. We're going to keep reading. She took off the garments of her widowhood and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat at the gate of Anayim, which is on the way to Timnah. Anytime you see these weird names, you should be thinking, what's that mean? Right? For she saw, for she saw that Shelal was grown up, and she wasn't given to him as a wife. So she tricked her. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. And he turned to her, by the way, and said, Please come, let me come in to you. For he didn't know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? This is, the opening line's powerful, you know. She took off her garments of widowhood. We're, we're led to believe that for all these years she's been waiting on Shelah to grow up and take her as a wife. She's been in mourning for all these years, but now she's shedding these garments of mourning. Sounds like Jacob removing his garments to deceive his dad. It sounds like the brothers of Joseph removing Joseph's colored coat or tunic to deceive their dad. It's exactly what it's meant to sound like. She's not merely shedding her sadness. She's covering herself with a veil to disguise herself in an act of deception. And in a hauntingly beautiful turn of phrase, we're told where she goes, the gate of Anaim and Timnah. Again, names. What do they mean? How do they move the story along? Timnah simply means territory or area, but it's Anaim that's super fascinating. Anaim means sight, eyes. It has to do with eyes and seeing clearly. Do you get it? Tamar veils herself, making herself not easy to see, and then she goes to the city gate called the Gate of Eyes, or the Gate of Sight, where everyone can see her, including Judah and the name. Ooh. The gate of sight. No one can see her face. It isn't seeable. It's hidden from sight. But she sits at the gate of sight, and she certainly can see Judah's face. That's brilliant. Here's the kicker. She dresses up as a woman of the night, and Judah is so predictable. Did you catch that bit? So predictable. She knew exactly. She knew his weakness. She knew his blind spot. She knows his sickness and how to exploit it. He doesn't have eyes to see his blind spot, but she has eyes to see his blind spot. And she's going to manipulate that blind spot and make him realize it. I'm not saying we all need a tomorrow in our life, God forbid, but I am saying that having someone in our lives who can help us see blind spots, our weaknesses, and we need that. I have too many of them. I need people to help me see them. I need to help people see theirs. We help one another. We need someone in our lives who will see our blind spots without trying to manipulate us. We take advantage of them. Someone who sees them and can help us see them ourselves and learn and grow from that. But tomorrow, she knows what she's doing. She strikes up this deal and asks, if we do this, what do you give me? It's so awful. We get the results in the next few verses. He said, look, I'll send you a young goat. 
from the flock. Um, she said, will you give me a pledge until you send it? He wasn't there. And he said, what pledge will I give you? She said, give me your signet and your cord and your staff that's in your hand. And he gave them to her and came into her. She conceived by him. And she arose and went away and put off her veil from her and put on the garments again of her widowhood. So there we have it, the deal. They strike up a deal for a goat. Crazy. Definitely some adultery involved, possibly some incest too. Where one sin exists, you're bound to find others. Doesn't have a goat on hand as things get underway. And so Tamar essentially takes the ancient equivalent of his phone, wallet, and keys. She takes his signet, his cord, and his staff. The signet was like a ring or a medallion with his family name and probably his family symbol on it. Perhaps the symbol of the lion. It had a little hole in the middle, right? So it could be worn as a necklace, which is the cord part. She takes a staff, which also will have the family markings. Essentially, she now has this man's identity. She saw his blind spot, and she owns him now. These things, they don't just connote family leadership. They specifically have to do with like priestly kingship. And with one act, one act, she essentially usurped or undermined or brought into limbo his entire identity as a priest king of this tribe. Don't miss that because now at this point we come to the realization that in life our blind spots affect other people. Yes? Our blind spots affect other people and they can affect them deeply and profoundly. If we're not willing to see and manage our blind spots, we can jeopardize others and their futures, their social status, and so on. And so we have to be intentional about looking into our own selfishness, our own blind spots, and seeing how they might affect other people, not just us. You follow me? When we're going to make some decisions, we often just maybe do it without thinking about how it will affect others. We want this or we want that. We often just do it without thinking. We want to go here or we want to go there. I want, I want, I want. And we end up wounding or hurting other people. That's precisely what's going on here. He has put his whole family in jeopardy with this one act. And so I challenge you today, find someone you trust to help you look at yourself and your blind spots. And once you do, have some discussion about your blind spots and how they might even affect other people. As I said earlier, a good place to start is by talking about your strengths. Just start with that. So what do you think my strengths, my greatest strength is? Ask somebody that. Start, start your conversation that way. What do you think my greatest strength is? Because every strength has a shadow side. That can be the follow-up question. So what do you think the shadow side of, of that strength might be? My blind spot. And how, how do those shadow sides maybe sometimes affect people? As a pastor, I certainly have my own blind spots. But one of the, the really difficult things about being a pastor is that congregants or church members often see mine and let me know about it, but not their own, Right? And I often feel the brunt of other people's blind spots. You might be active in church or have some influence, but the shadow side can be to use the influence to gossip or hurt people. Someone might be willing to give financially, but then they act as though they should get some power in return. Blind spot. 
Someone might be willing to speak up, but then they might do it in a way that's hurtful, blind spot. Someone might have time to give, but then might be smothering, blind spot. Someone might have ideas to offer, and if those ideas aren't implemented, they use their creativity to create a grapevine instead. Blind spot. I see this stuff all the time. In 20 plus years of ministry, I've seen it over and over and over and over. People are unaware of their blind spots, and they let their blind spots ruin a good thing. I was reading uh, all week trying to learn about my own blind spots as a leader here. Um, and in one of the books, I came across this graphic that was trying to depict the author's point. The author was saying that in almost every organization, 30% of the people tend to be engaged, active. The staggering 50% are typically there, but mostly engaged, kind of indifferent about whatever happens. And then there's a 20%, and I quote from the book, who are actively disengaged or are arsonists. And here's the image. It says, picture your organization, I'm reading from the book, quote, picture your organization or team in a tug of war trying to grow. Assume your organization consists of 10 people you have on your side of the line to help. The data tells us that while three people are pulling as hard as they can, five of your people are not pulling at all. They're pretty much indifferent. And two people are trying to cut the rope with a knife and set the rope on fire at the same time. That's chilling. Funny, but chilling. It's upsetting data. And it holds true, as I said, across the board, regardless of whether it's a church or business or school or whatever. And so if we know this, how can we be intentional about making sure this isn't something that we overlook at the bridge? How can we be intentional about changing this kind of thing if it exists here? How might we apply this even in our own family lives? about our work situations, our friendship circles. There's a lot to be learned. This week, I just polled. I polled a bunch of random people from the bridge. Okay? I asked them all the same exact question. What is the purpose of the bridge church? I wanted to see how much we might or might not be on the same page. If you were to ask me, uh, just me, what was the purpose of the bridge church? I'd say, deep study, deep service, deep prayer, deep community. Uh, that would be my answer. Not the right answer. It's not the right answer. But it's sort of our tagline. It's an answer. But here are some of the responses. I'm going to share them with you that I received to that question. And you can judge for yourself whether we're on the same page or not. Uh, maybe you would detect some blind spots or connotations, some things I missed. I don't know. Here's the first. The purpose of the bridge church is to, what? Live intentionally. It's where our lifestyle draws people to Christ. Two, second response, to teach people how to go deep into their spiritual life. To teach people about God. To be a community committed to deep learning and deep living with the aim of impacting the broader community for the sake of the kingdom. To grow God's kingdom. To share Jesus' love to those that don't know him. To draw closer to God and go out and reach people. To grow deeper in our relationship with God and then take that out into the community in which we live. To help us build our understanding of the gospel and our belief in Christ. To offer a no BS presentation of the Bible. 
to discover and build deep communion with God and deep connection with his people and to be a place where deep study of scripture leads to a community of holiness. Some good stuff. There's a lot of good crossover going on there. And none of what was said there is wrong. None of it's off base. But I do wonder what comes to your mind when you hear all that. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Please talk to me about that. Um, now let's round out this story. Judah sent the young goat by the hand of his friend, the Adolamite, to receive the pledge from the woman's hand, but he didn't find her. And then he asked the men of her place, saying, where is the prostitute that was at Benaiah by the road? They said, there's been no prostitute here. He returned to Judah and said, I haven't found her. And also the men of the place said, there's been no prostitute here. Judah said, let her keep it, lest we be shamed or embarrassed. For see, I sent this young goat and you haven't found her. So I just want to make two really quick points here. It's clear, one, that Tamar has tricked Judah. Clear. She wasn't interested in the goat at all. She was interested in having his identity as collateral. That's a very difficult place for anyone to be in. Two, um, we see that Judah immediately senses that. He's in trouble. She's got him, right? Um, the text says, let her keep the stuff lest we be shamed. We're embarrassed. She's very worried about being embarrassed, found out, it's alarming. He's not concerned about what he did. He's concerned with, not concerned with how he treated the woman. He's concerned about being embarrassed in public. Concerned with the fact that he'll no longer be able to give his good reputation or to have his good reputation as a front to do bad things. And there are a lot of people like that. They do wrong. They don't care how they hurt people in the process, even if they're hurting themselves. They'll do what they want and they'll put up a front if anyone tries to call them on it. And you see, a lot of us are more concerned then we'll often admit about maintaining our reputation. I'm not saying that's wrong or bad, but it can be when it's obsessed over and when it's used as a front. The reality, guys, is that none of us is as good as we think we are. Not a one of us. We all give ourselves way too much credit. I'm sorry if that sounds like a downer, but it's the truth. Every last one of us there's an old saying that goes like this. If anyone thinks ill of you, don't be angry with him. For you're far worse than he thinks you are. <laughs> Deep down, we all know there's truth to that. People had access to like our thought reels all day. We'd never go in public again. So we all have these mind bugs and blind spots, and we got to own them. Here's how the story ends. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has played the prostitute. Moreover, look, she's pregnant by prostitution. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. When she was brought out, she sent to her father-in-law, saying, I am pregnant by the man who owns these. What's she holding up? And she also said, please examine. Please examine carefully whose these are, the signet and the cords and the staff. Judah recognized him and said, She's more righteous than I, because I didn't give birth to Shelah, my son. He knew her again no more. And the time of her labor, look, twins were in her womb. And when she gave birth, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This came out first, or this one came out first. As he drew back his hand, sure enough, his brother came out, and she said, What a breach you have breached for yourself. 
Therefore, his name was called Perez. And afterward, his brother came out, who had the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. This is setting us up for more problems, right? It's inverting the order again. Everything comes to a head. It's all exposed. Tamar masterfully manipulates her father-in-law, and in the end, she unveils herself. She ultimately, though, unveils Judah. She forces him to recognize and come to terms with his blind spots, and he says, she is more righteous than I am. I mean, okay, that's not really saying much. They're both kind of curvy and sleazy, right? Um, neither of these, Tamar or Judah, are righteous. But in this act, this one bit of saving grace is that Tamar, more than Ur, and more than Onan, and more than Shelah, and more than Judah, is concerned with carrying on the line of Abraham. This Gentile, king-like woman has more concern for God's command and plan than these men of Israel did. And it's Tamar... Of course, one of at least four Gentiles who in the course of Israelite history are responsible for carrying on Abraham's line, which gives us the birth of the Messiah, Jesus. And even though this is all jacked up, there's lots to be learned about blind spots. Lots. One last thing I want you to notice is that even though Judah's comment, she's more righteous than I, isn't saying much. He does go on and admit his sin. Brings us to our bottom line, and we'll wrap up here. God can only use you to bless others when you recognize your blind spots and make your mistakes and confess your need for Him. So, let's be about that this week and going forward. Amen.